Let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, and uh, I'm going to read a chunk of scripture to you, okay? So I want you to follow along with me. We're going to begin in verse 7 of chapter 12, and we're going to read to the end of chapter 13. Then we're going to talk about it, okay? Genesis 12, 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say, You are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram went into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commanded her, commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Then Abram went up from Egypt and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went out on, he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, Then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let us let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right, and if you take the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the Garden of Eden, or the Garden of the Lord, 
like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pinched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which were in Hebron, and he built an altar there to the Lord. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds to the truth of your word. Lord, reveal the truths we will talk about today by your spirit, Lord, that it would further conform us, and transform us to the image of your son. Renew our hearts, renew our minds to this truth that we would be set free, Lord, by the things that hinder us and hold us. Lord, we pray this, that you would be glorified in us, in your church, world without end. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there is a lot here. There's so much we could talk about. And even as I'm reading this, I want to just stop and I want to talk about some things. But I'm going to stay on task because I'm going to talk to you about two specific things from the section of Scripture that I just read to you. I want to talk to you about the fact that God is sovereign in our faithlessness. And I want to talk to you about the fact that God is sovereign over our choices. Verse 8 of Genesis chapter 12 says, There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And we see that Abram makes this journey from Haran into Canaan. It's, it's at least a 500-mile journey that he makes. And the Bible presents this picture. It just says he left Haran and came into the land of Canaan. It doesn't give us any detail about what happened. It's just very quickly, very succinctly, he left there and now he's in Canaan. But once he got into Canaan, now God begins to give us detail about what's happening with Abram. And the first thing we see when he comes into Canaan is that there is a famine in the land. So after making this journey and coming into Canaan, Abram encounters a famine in the land. And I want you to, to think about this because remember the Bible is written for us. It's not written to us necessarily. Jesus spoke to his disciples, but he spoke to them for all of us. These things are re were recorded for us. This specifically deals with Abram, but it's giving us a picture of something. It's informing us. It's teaching us. It's helping us. And one of the things that I think is important for us to realize is that just as Abram came into his promised land, the land that God showed him, and when he came there, God gave promises to him, we're going to see this right in the very beginning. God says to your descendants, I'm going to give all of this land 
Boom, there's a promise. Abram doesn't even have any descendants. He doesn't have any children yet. His wife is barren, unable to produce children. Yet God immediately gives him this pro- promise. And, and, and in the face of this promise, he's in a famine that is so severe that he feels like he can't even stay in the land. And he's got to go to another land. So our coming to Jesus does not carry the promise that we will have no trial or tribulation. In fact, Jesus promised his disciples, therefore he promises us that we will have tribulation in this world. But he also says to be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. You'll find that in John 16, 33. So Jesus doesn't promise that we'll escape tribulation. Jesus promises to be with us through our tribulation. Jesus doesn't take us out of the world. Jesus has joined us to him as one in this world. He doesn't take us out of the valley. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And so Abram enters the promised land and he experiences a trial, a famine, And so what does Abram do? Abram goes down to Egypt to escape the famine. Now, in the Scripture, Egypt is always a type of the world. And as we go through the Old Testament, as we do this, you know, in in times coming up in the future, when we get into the book of Exodus and we get into the story of the Exodus, and when we look at Christ, when Christ is born, where does Christ go? Christ leaves and he goes to Egypt to escape Herod. And God, what does God do? God calls his son out of Egypt. So we see even the children of Israel as a picture of God calling his children out of Egypt. But before the children of Israel, before Abram had any children, Abram goes to Egypt. He goes down into Egypt to escape the famine. And so we see that he leaves the promised land. He goes into Egypt to escape famine. Egypt's a type of the world. Abram went into Egypt, or he went, we might say, into the world to escape his trial. Contrast that with Jesus, who went into the world to face his trial. Jesus left heaven and he came into this world to face his trial. Abram leaves the promised land and goes into Egypt to escape his trial. Oftentimes in our life, when we become disillusioned and we become frustrated and we feel like we've lost hope, you see people will run back to the world to try to find their escape. There is no escape in the world. That's the problem. The world is the problem. The unredeemed sinful world that we live in, that's the problem. Sin is the problem. Running to sin, running to the world, is not the answer. Even if it seems like it is, it's not. God is our only answer. God is our only hope. And this is why Jesus didn't wait for us to get to him because he knew we couldn't get to him. He came to us. He faced his trial. He went to the cross. He finished the work. 
He did what we could not do for ourselves. So we're in the world, but in Christ, the Scripture teaches us that we're no longer of the world. The promise of Jesus in the midst of tribulation that He has overcome the world gives us a hope in His love that transcends any fear, any circumstance, any situation, any trial, any tribulation. This is why 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love casts out all fear. It's not your ability to love God perfectly. It's the knowledge that He loves you perfectly. And that because of His perfect love for you, you have no reason to fear. So Abram didn't trust that God would protect him from the Egyptians. So he lied about Sarai being his sister. Abram was more aware of his trial and potential tribulation. He didn't even know for sure what the Egyptians were going to do. He just thought, here's the potential problem I'm facing. So he was more aware of his trial and his potential tribulation than he was of God and God's promise to him. So in the midst of our circumstances, we need to look to God who is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over all our situations. He's sovereign over all our circumstances. The plans and the purposes of God are beyond our ability to thwart. Now, if you read the story of Abram carefully, Pharaoh's got Abram's wife. He's taken her. And his intention was, I'm going to make this beautiful woman my wife. So the reality is, Abram might have had his life saved, <laughs> but he didn't have his wife saved. Pharaoh had his wife. Abram still had his life, but Pharaoh had Abram's wife. And what was God's promise to Abram before he ever went to Egypt? To your descendants, I'm going to give all of this land. The only problem is he gets to Egypt, and now he's lost his wife to Pharaoh, and he's not going to have any descendants because he just lost his wife. So the reality is his plan backfired in a sense, except for the fact that they didn't kill him. It was really a faithless plan. It, it revealed the faithlessness of Abram. So he didn't trust that God would protect him from the Egyptians. He lied about his wife. He, he was looking at the potential tribulation. But God had made a promise to him. And so in the midst of our circumstances, we need to look to God who's sovereign over all of these things. The plans and the purposes of God are beyond our ability to thwart. Abram had no reason to fear the Egyptians. God had made a promise to him because God had an eternal plan to bring forth the promised seed. Remember back in Genesis 3.15. Go back to Genesis 3.15 when God promises to Adam and to Eve in the garden and he says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between your seed, serpent, and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman will crush your head. Where was that seed of the woman going to come from? 
It was going to come through Abram. It was going to come from Eve, from Adam to Eve, passed all the way down to Noah, his wife, all the way down now to Abram and Sarah. This was the promise of God. This was the eternal plan and purpose of God. Abram didn't trust in God's plan. He didn't trust in God's promise, so he came up with his own plan. And we see this is not going to be the last time Abram does this. And why? Because this is our tendency. This is, this is what we do in our human fallen nature. We think, you know, I'm sure God's got a plan, but it just doesn't seem really good right now. So let me see if I can come up with one on my own. But here's the reality. Even though Abram came up with a faithless plan, God remained faithful. God did not allow his plan, his purpose to be thwarted by to be stopped by, to be disrupted by Abram's fear and faithlessness. Now, even though Abram didn't feel safe or secure, God's eternal plan and purpose was never in danger, which means Abram was never in danger. This is the faith that we must have. Faith in God concerning our lives that even when our circumstances seem difficult to impossible, we trust that God is faithful. That whether we can see it and whether we can comprehend it, God has a plan and God has a purpose in everything. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Proverbs 19.21 says, I'm sorry. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. So in spite of Abram's faithless behavior, God upheld Abram and Sarah and the eternal purpose that God had ordained. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 12, I mean 2.13. So our greatest trials often begin when we enter into God's promise in Christ. If anybody ever tells you, all you need to do is give your life to Jesus and everything's going to be great, they're lying to you. Not, not, not totally. Really, in a sense, that is true. If you will give your life to Jesus, if, if Jesus is the, is the captain of your salvation... If Jesus is the Lord of your life, it is true that everything, everything is good. But it does not mean that you will only experience easy things in this life. That all your troubles are gone. That all your trials and tribulations will just fly right out the window if you'll just give your heart to Jesus. That's not what that means. That's not what Jesus promises us. 
Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Tell me what's easy about the cross. Tell me what's, what's pleasant about the cross. Paul says that I would know the depths of your suffering and the power of your resurrection. Paul's, Paul knew that there was no power of resurrection apart from the suffering that the cross brings. What did Jesus mean in John 16, when he says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. He meant exactly what he said, in this world you will have tribulation. Why? Because this world is sinful. Paul writes in Romans that the creation groans under the weight of the sin and the curse that's upon it. Inflicted by the fall of man and the creation groans awaiting the redemption. Why does it groan? Because sin brings pain and sin brings suffering and sin brings hardship. But God is good even in the midst of that. And God uses everything, the bitter and the sweet, the difficult, as well as those things that are easy. He uses the blessing and the curse. He uses life and death, light and dark. He uses all for his glory. He uses all for his eternal plan and purpose. The question is, Christian, do you trust that? Do you trust in the God who is sovereign over everything? Or do you trust in a God who in your mind's eye is up in heaven reacting to everything man is doing? And the more the population of earth increases, the harder job, jo God's job gets because now he's got several more billions of people he's trying to keep up with and run behind them and make sure. Is that? Is that? I always think of the Wizard of Oz. I always think of, of Toto pulling back the curtain in the Wizard of Oz toward the end of the movie and there is the guy pulling the levers frantically trying to make, keep ahead of of, of the scarecrow and the lion and the tin man and Dorothy and Toto goes over there and pulls the curtain back and, and he's exposed for who he really is. Listen, there is no curtain to be pulled back to expose God as anything but the sovereign Lord and God of all. Who is not running behind man to fix man's problems, but is ruling above, sovereign over man in all things in his creation. God is not frantically doing anything. God is completely, calmly, coolly, and totally collected, ruling and reigning over everything. This is the promise and the hope we have in Him. This is why we can say that even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. He is the God who is sovereign over all the plans and all the purposes of man, even the faithless ones.
So Abram goes down into Egypt. It all works out. And he comes back. And chapter 13 begins with Abram coming up from Egypt and going into the south. That is the southern part of the land that God promised him. So Abram returns from Egypt. He goes back to the place. It says that he first had pitched his tent where he had set up an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. This is a picture. This pictures our repentance. This pictures our returning to the Lord. What is God doing? God calls us out of the world. He's calling us out of Egypt. He's calling us back to him. God calling Abram. He calls him back. Abram returns. And he calls upon the only one who is our promise, the only one who is our provider, the only one who is our sustainer and our deliverer. God comes, Abram comes back and he calls upon the name of the Lord, the only one that he can truly trust in. And so Abram and Lot, the story goes on, they end up separating. And Abram allows Lot to choose the land that Lot wants. And in verse 11, it tells us that Abram lets Lot choose, and Lot chose for himself the plain of the Jordan, well watered, looked perfect. But verses 14 through 17 show us that God chose for Abram. Lot chose for himself, but God chose for Abram, whether Abram knew it or not. God gave all the land to Abram and his descendants. Lot, take what you want. Lot said, I think I'll take that over there. Thank you, uncle. And he goes, and God says, now, Abram, I want you to look north, south, east, and west. As far as you can see, I'm giving you the land. That happened to include all of Lot's land, too. Would you rather choose for yourself or would you rather let God choose for you? I promise, you might think you want to choose for yourself, but the reality is you really want God to choose for you because God always makes better choices than we do. He really does. I don't know if Abram was being nice. I don't know if Abram was exhibiting faith. It doesn't tell us here. It just says that Abram says to Lot, Lot, you choose, and I'll take what's left. And Lot chose for himself. And then we read verses 14 through 17, and we see that God chose for Abram. God says, no, no I'm not going to just give you what you didn't choose. I'm going to give you everything. Because why? Because God had already made a promise to Abram when he first came into the land. Before Abram went down to Egypt, the promise was already given to him. Abram just wasn't mindful of it. When Abram let Lot cho choose for himself, the promise was still in, in force. And this is exactly why God says, turn around 360 degrees, look around you, this is all yours, Abram. I've already chosen for you. 
before Abram ever left Ur of the Chaldees with his family, God already had this land for him. God had already chosen for Abram when Abram didn't even know it. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Turn over there. How does this, how does this apply to us? Oh, it applies greatly to us. Because what God has given us in Jesus Christ is much more than a piece of desert land somewhere on a globe. What God has given us in Jesus Christ is every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1. Well, how are, you, how are we to understand? How do we apply these promises that God has made to Abram? Well, let's go to the New Testament and let's get the commentary from the Scripture itself. So God gave all the land to Abram and his seed. In Christ, we inherit the promise of Abram. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Let's read this. Paul writing to the church at Galatia, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Where are we all one? In Christ. Does the color of our skin matter? Does the ethnicity of our last name matter? Does our country of origin matter? No. We have all become one in Christ. And if you are, listen to this, and if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So in the very beginning when Abram comes from Haran into the land of Canaan and God says to Abram, this is the land to your descendants, I'm giving this land to your seed is what the, the what it literally says. And that seed that land was promised to, that seed that land is made that seed is Christ. We see this also in Galatians. Not to many seeds was the promise made, Paul writes, but to one. Not many is plural, but to one whose seed is Christ. So you and I don't inherit the promise apart from Christ because the promise is given in Christ. But if we are Christ, Paul says you are the seed of Abraham. You're not the seed of Abraham because you're Jewish. You're not the seed of Abraham because of any other reason except that you belong to Jesus. How did you come to belong to Jesus? Jesus purchased you with his blood. You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore. If you think you do, it's just an illusion that you're living in. But the reality is you belong to Jesus, the Bible says. And because you belong to Jesus, Paul says, you are heirs of Abraham, the promise God made to Abraham. And that promise is realized, it is fulfilled in Christ. So Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you, John 15, 16. John writes that we love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. 
Paul writes that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4. And Jesus prays for those who were given to him by the Father, John 6, 65, and John 17, 6, 9, and 24. Lot chose for himself, but God chose for Abram. God has chosen for us to become heirs according to the promise by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because God has a plan. When did that plan begin? It had no beginning. It is eternal. It was in God in eternity. It came to manifestation when God caused everything else to come to manifestation. And it is eternal. It will last for eternity because it is in Christ. And Christ is eternal. Jesus said, these words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God has given us promise in him. And that promise in him will never pass away. And this is exactly what Paul boldly writes in Romans 8, 28 through 31. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What did Abram have to fear when he went to Egypt? The answer is nothing. Because the same God Paul writes about in his letter to the Romans is the same God that called Abram in the very beginning. And the same God that called Abram in the very beginning is the same God who is master over your salvation, who is master over your life, who has an eternal plan that you are part of by grace. And his promise is this. God knows how to work all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. I always remind people, I ask them, do you love Jesus? And they'll say yes. I said, do you know why you love Jesus? 1 John 4, 19, because Jesus first loved you. Jesus didn't decide to love you because you were lovable because you weren't lovable and I was not lovable. There was no love in us. There was nothing lovable about us. The Bible classifies us as hostile enemies of God. How did we come to love him? Romans 5, because he poured his love into our hearts by his spirit. God is love. He poured himself into our hearts by his spirit. Christian, what do you have to fear? The God who said, let there be light, dwells in you by the Spirit. That same Spirit that hovered over the darkness dwells in you. That same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. What do you have to be afraid of? You have a promise more sure, better than what Abram had. What do we have to fear? 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. 
For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us, listen, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. When you watch the news this afternoon, when you read the internet or the newspaper, if you still read a newspaper, and you see all the chaos happening, whether it's in Ferguson, Missouri, or whether it's in Iraq or Syria or on our borders, when you see all that, just know this truth, that what we see is temporary. But who God is, His rule and His reign are eternal. And the men in the Middle East who are cutting people's heads off, And the drug cartels who are getting rich beyond imagination by selling drugs to gullible Americans. To the people who think they're pulling all the strings and running the show on planet earth. Through their wealth and their power and their might. They are nothing. They are nothing. Except part of God's eternal plan and purpose. And if they do not, by the grace of God, come to faith in Jesus, whatever they have been able to enjoy on this earth is about as good as it will ever get. And on the reverse side of that, for those who experience the most horrendous things you can think of on earth. Those things are temporary. But our joy, the Bible says, is unspeakable and full of glory in the presence of the Lord. In our pain and our suffering, Paul classifies as temporary. Working for us a more eternal weight of glory. And this is why we keep our eyes not on what we can see, but on what is unseen. We keep our eyes on Jesus. And this is why the Scripture commands us to rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. To give thanks for all things to God the Father, Ephesians 5.20. In this we have faith for all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us, 2 Corinthians 1.20. As, as with Abram and Lot, God will always choose better than we can. And this is why we can have absolute faith and confidence in the sovereign grace of God that transcends all of our life and all of our choices. And this is hope that God is sovereign over our choices. So I want to think about these two statements. God is sovereign in our faithlessness and God is sovereign in our choices. And we have to understand these two statements in the light of God's whole counsel revealed to us in the Scripture. And if we do not allow the Scripture to form our thought and our understanding of all things, then we're left with nothing but empty and vain philosophies of men who are grasping to understand what they can never understand. 
I want you to listen to the warning of Scripture. Colossians 2.8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.13-14, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So this statement, God is sovereign in our faithlessness. We are born into God's plan and purpose, faithless and separated from God in sin and death. And in our faithlessness, God comes to us. He gives us faith to believe. And even in our ongoing struggle with doubt and unbelief, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? Because He cannot deny Himself, Paul writes to Timothy. So God the Father has joined us together with Him in Jesus Christ. This is what is meant to be this is what is meant when it, when it says we are the body of Christ. We are members of His body. We are one, joined as one in Christ, with Christ and with one another. In John 14, 20, here's what Jesus told His disciples. At that day, that is the day of His resurrection, at that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. In other words, Christ is saying this to us. Christ is in the Father, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. When the Bible says he cannot deny himself, why can't he deny himself? Why does he remain faithful when we are faithless? Because he can't deny himself, because if you are in Christ, you've been joined to Christ, and he will not deny himself, he will not deny you. Because you are, Ephesians 5.30, now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We are members of his body. He cannot deny himself means he cannot deny us. Because by grace through faith, he has made us one with him. This is the miracle of regeneration. Or this is the miracle of the new birth. What we call being born again. So the reality that we are one with Him does not give us the freedom to be faithless. It gives us the promise that He remains faithful because we cannot be faithful apart from Him and apart from His grace. This is what it means to say that God is sovereign over our faithlessness. He remains faithful to His eternal plan and purpose that we are made a part of in His sovereign grace. This statement, God is sovereign over our choices. God, Abram let Lot choose, but God chose for Abram. This does not mean that we don't make real choices each and every moment of every day. I'm glad you guys chose to come to church today. We make real choices every day moment of every day, some good and some not. Would you agree with that? To say that God is sovereign over our choices is to say that God's eternal plan and purpose is not governed by our choices. Rather, our choices are governed 
by God's eternal plan and purpose. And this is how we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We know this is true because we know that our choices are ultimately governed by the sovereign and eternal purpose of God that cannot be thwarted and cannot be stopped. God is not in heaven reacting to man's choices. God is in heaven in his sovereign authority and in his sovereign grace ruling and reigning over man's choices. And this is why our hope does not disappoint. This is how Paul can write, our hope does not disappoint. Our tribulation produces something in us. God allows it to come to us because God is producing something in us. And ultimately, he's producing hope, and our hope does not disappoint. Why? Because God is ruling and reigning over all. So God is sovereign over all. That is a simple statement with huge and complex implications. But listen to me, church. God doesn't want you to focus on the enormity or the complexity of a statement. God wants us to trust in the power of his love revealed to us by his grace. You will never understand God. You will never understand his ways. You'll drive yourself crazy trying to figure it out. But what God has given us the capacity to do, we can grow and we should grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. We should grow in our comprehension of what God has done for us in Christ. But what God wants us to do, first and foremost, is to trust in His love for us. How was God going to protect Abram from the Egyptians? Abram didn't know, so he developed his own plan. And in spite of his failed plan, God protected him anyways. How is God going to protect you? How is God going to sustain you? How is God going to carry you through? Even the places and the circumstances you don't want to go through, but you're going to go through them anyways because God's going to carry you through them. How are you going to make it through that? You're going to make it through by the grace of God. How are you going to trust? You're going to trust by His grace. What are you going to trust in? Your ability to understand why and how everything's happening to you? No, forget that. You'll never understand that. What you trust in is His love for you. So God doesn't, in His Word, God doesn't reveal why He does everything He does. But he does very clearly throughout Scripture from beginning to end reveal that he loves his children and that his plan and his purpose for his children is good. And that even when his children can't see how that plan's going to work out for good, God says, here's my promise to you. I will work all things together for good. Here's my promise to you. I predestined you. I've known you. I've called you. And ultimately, I will glorify you. God reveals the beginning, clearly. God reveals the end, clearly. <laughs> the journey in between, mm, he doesn't always reveal so clearly. 
the twists and the turns that we might take. But he always gives us assurance of where he's taking us. And he lets us know where we've come from. And knowing where we've come from and knowing where he's taking us should give us great hope and great assurance as we walk through the darkness and the shadow that our journey often takes us through. To trust that God is sovereign over all is to trust that nothing can separate us from the love of God and that God is working all things together for good to those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. May His truth set you free and may it guard your heart and guard your minds with His everlasting and surpassing peace. This is why the Bible commands us to give all praise to a sovereign God. Let's all stand. Father, we come to you today. We acknowledge who you are. We acknowledge that there is much we do not understand. There is so much that is unknown, but we are so very thankful that you have revealed so much to us that you have made known to us who you are through your word. You have made known to us, revealed to us your love, your sovereign plan and purpose. Lord, we know that you have one. We don't understand all there is to know and understand about it, but you have so very clearly in your word revealed that you are a God who had a plan before creation. And that plan by your grace, has come to include us. Father, help us to rest in your sovereign rule in all things. Our lives are not our own. We are created and we are redeemed for your plan and your purpose in Christ Jesus. As we live our lives and make our choices, many good and many not so good. Lord, give us an ever-present reminder that you remain faithful even in our faithlessness and that you are sovereign over all of our choices. Open the eyes of our understanding to see that you are ruling and reigning over all things in this world and in our lives by your sovereign authority and grace. We ask God that you would do this for your glory. Amen. Now I remind you of the last two verses of the letter to, of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory and exceeding joy. To God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and the peace of our Lord. Go in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go as the salt of the earth. Go in the glory and for the glory of the Lord. Amen? Amen.